All right. Let's turn to Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. We begin in verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for learning wisdom and discipline, for understanding insightful sayings, for receiving prudent instruction and righteousness, justice and integrity, for teaching shrewdness to the inexperienced, knowledge and discretion to a young man. Let a wise person listen and increase learning, and let a discerning person obtain guidance. For understanding a proverb or a parable, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. Father, we do come this morning and ask your help. In and of ourselves, we can't grasp these truths. We can't apply these truths. We can't obey these truths. We are completely dependent upon you right now that you would come and speak words of life and hope and joy and conviction and salvation to the deepest part of who we are. We pray you would do this because you love us and you desire good things for us, life with you, life forever. Father, we ask you to do all of this for the glory of you alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What is... Your best life. Man, that's bright. What is the best way to live? That's brighter. Try this. <laughs> New lights. Uh, what is the best way to live life? Uh, what's your greatest hope and joy in life? Joel Osteen in his New York Times bestseller of, of over 8 million do- uh, copies and counting, Your Best Life Now, says this in one part. You have to learn to follow your heart. You can't let other people pressure you into being something that you're not. If you want God's favor in your life, you must be the person he made you to be, not the person your boss wants you to be, not even the person your parents or your husband wants you to be. You can't let outside expectations keep you you from following your own heart. If that sounds familiar, it's because it's the theme of every Disney princess movie that's ever been released. Thanos would tell you that the best life uh, to live would be uh, find these six stones and bring balance. No spoilers, don't worry. Bring balance to the universe by exterminating half of all living creatures and then retire to the farm. Tony Stark would tell you the best life would include Pepper and a family. Same thing for Cap and Peggy Clark. The American dream was famously immortalized in the Declaration of Independence with the sentence, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal even though at the time that wasn't being lived out, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so as Americans striving to live the American dream, it would include those rights along with what we would call the Bill of Rights, right to assembly and worship and vote and bear arms, not be illegally searched and seized, the right to own private property, pursue prosperity and opportunity, So if Americans were to define what is the best life, it would at least include that as the bare minimum. There is a best life hashtag on social media. On Instagram, it has over 1.6 million posts. Perusing a few last night, you had a cute dog hopping around on two legs, a few cats, a chicken, lots of Coachella, travel, 
women's rights, one really fat French bulldog, and selfie after selfie after selfie after selfie after selfie. All hashtag best life. We're beginning a new series this morning that will uh, off and on take us up to Advent. So we'll spend most of the rest of the year looking at this idea of our best life. And we'll be doing it from the Old Testament wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon, Job, and Old Testament poetry found in the Psalms. At how God defines and reveals what He says is our best life. And we begin today, and we'll continue through May in this book of Proverbs. Now, naming a series the best life and having it come from Old Testament wisdom literature kind of implies that wisdom is going to be a part of the equation. You can't really hide that. If you've been uh, with us uh, for long, you know that in the time we've been at church and the time that we've had Sunday worship gatherings, we walk through almost all the major types of literature in the Bible. So New Testament letters, Gospels, Old Testament narrative, major and minor prophets, even a little bit of apocalyptic literature in Daniel. The only other major section that we haven't really touched on in our Sunday morning gatherings would be the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. So for those of you looking forward to creation and Exodus stories, as well as sacrificial laws, instructions on how to build a tabernacle and ways to identify leprosy, that series is coming one day. But our desire for this series to explore this type of Old Testament literature we haven't looked at wasn't to, to, to uh, come up with a theme called Best Life. Like We didn't start with a theme, Best Life. Let's find something to fit it. We started with, we want to go through Old Testament wisdom literature and poetry. What is a theme that ties it all together? What is the thread that weaves it all into one coherent series? And one of the major results of Old Testament wisdom literature is how God helps his people live everyday life with wisdom to experience life as he's designed life to be experienced and function best. Proverbs will help us see how most of life works. Most ordinary, normal, everyday life. 90% of life, if you want to put a number on it. Proverbs is filled with all of these short sentences that are arranged in, in really random order, it seems. They don't seem to be really related to each other. It's really hard to, to study Proverbs as a book because they're just these random thoughts. They're, they're more truisms than truthisms. So they're not statements that you can take as promises of God that are 100% true all the time, but they are generally true. Generally speaking, if you train up a child in the way that they should go when they are old, they won't depart from it. Generally, that's true, not all the time. And that's the lens through which you have to see the book of Proverbs. And Proverbs helps us just navigate, and it touches on almost every aspect of life. And we'll try to hit as many as we can in the next five weeks. Song of Songs, Song of Solomon will help us see God's wisdom and God's best in one of the most secret and intimate areas of life, marriage and the marriage bed. God even has desires for the best life to be experienced there and has a plan to help us. He cares enough about that to be healthy that he gave us an entire book. Ecclesiastes will help us deal with and see how God's wisdom uh, helps us navigate the inevitability of life and death as well as how we navigate life when God's blessings have overflowed to us to such a degree that, that we would be prosperous, we would be blessed, which is the American world today. In other words, I've lived out by God's grace the life of Proverbs, and generally speaking, I experienced the blessings of God. Now what do I do with all this? 
Job will help us see God's wisdom when life is falling apart and we are suffering. And in the Psalms, we'll see a songbook God's given us to sing as we navigate all that life brings us, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And the thread that ties all of this together is this idea of wisdom. And what I want to look at this morning is, what is this wisdom and how do we get it? What is wisdom? As we seek to define it, let's think about its origin. Wisdom is universal in all cultures. So it wasn't just the Jewish culture that developed wisdom literature. It wasn't just the Christians that developed wisdom literature. All cultures have their own own wisdom literature because wisdom goes back to creation. God creates everything by calling everything into existence from nothing. And on the final day of creation, he makes man and woman imago Dei in his image. Unique from all other aspects of creation, the mountains, the stars, the sun, the moon, the animals, the sea, and the land, those all testify to God's power, majesty, and glory, but only mankind was made in His image and given a mandate. Genesis 1, 27-28. So God created man in His own image, created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. He blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. As image bearers, ruling with God over creation, being fruitful and multiplying, God intended for us to spread His image throughout all of creation so that all of creation would see and know what life looks like under the rule of our good, gracious God. And so for mankind, we had abilities and faculties unique to the rest of creation. We could think and reason and make rational and logical decisions. We had self-awareness and knew and understood we had this role as image bearers, which also meant we could understand creation unlike any other part of creation and make decisions about everyday life. And we had this relationship with God, our Creator, based on His revealed Word and the instructions He gave us, unique from all other creation. And so central to this task of our parents in creation was to gather information and make decisions. And to do that flowing out of a relationship with God and His revealed instruction and word. This was wisdom. In relationship with the God who made them and in relationship with creation, let's work together to cultivate culture, to make culture. And this was a form of wisdom. But if you know the story very quickly, things go south. We took God's instruction, understood it, made good, wise decisions until one day the serpent came along and said, did God really say? Is he really trustworthy? Don't you think that he's hiding something from you? And in that instance, Adam and Eve believed the serpent and not God. They revealed the second path of knowledge and instruction where man is the ultimate authority and not God. We know better than what God's revealed to us. Let's choose our path and see where it goes. And this led to sin and destruction and chaos and disorder and rebellion. And from Genesis 3 on, you see these two streams of decisions, decision-making that weave their way throughout the story of God's people. God would continually show up and make himself known. And sometimes, sometimes by his grace, humanity would align themselves in accordance with God's revelation and commands. And many times, eventually, everyone would take their own path and place themselves in authority over God and his ways and do their own thing. In, this old, in the Old Testament, you had this continual cycle of God graciously coming after His people to make Himself known, to help them, deliver them from the consequences of their sin. And they respond, say, okay, God, we'll do it your way. You're wiser, you're no, you know more, you're, you're stronger, you're, you're mightier. We'll do things your way. And that lasted for a season, and then they rebelled and decided they liked their way better. 
and they suffer and they call out for help. And here comes God again to deliver his people and help them because he is more faithful to us than we'll ever be to him. And during those seasons of obedience, you would see God's people living life God's way, and this would be the epitome of wisdom, living as we were designed to live in relationship with our Creator. The high point of this was during the reign of King Solomon, the son of the great King David, the giant killer. David dies, and Solomon takes over, and in 1 Kings 3, God appears to Solomon, and Solomon gets a kind of genie-in-the-bottom moment. God asks him, what do you want? In 1 Kings 3, Solomon says, Lord my God, you have now made your servant king in my father David's place. Yet I am just a youth with no experience in leadership. Your servant is among your people who you have chosen, a people too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant a receptive heart to judge your people and to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Now it pleased the Lord that Solomon had requested this. So God said to him, because you have requested this and do not ask for long life or riches for yourself or the death of your enemies, but ask for discernment for yourself to administer justice. I will therefore do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and understanding heart so that there has never been anyone like you before and never will be again. In addition, I will give you what you did not ask for, both riches and honor, so that no king will be your equal during your entire Life. And so when the book of Proverbs begins and names Solomon, this is who it's referring to. The man who was wiser than anyone before him or anyone after him. A man given wisdom by God unlike anyone else. You see examples of this later on in chapter 4. God gave Solomon wisdom, very great insight and understanding as vast as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the east, greater than the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone, wiser than a bunch of guys whose names are listed there. His reputation extended to all the surrounding nations. Solomon spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. He spoke about trees, from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop growing out of the wall. He also spoke about animals, birds, reptiles, and fish. Emissaries of all people sent by every king on earth who had heard of his wisdom came to listen to Solomon's Wisdom. So we see a guy, the wisest man who ever lived, demonstrating a wisdom that did help him make decisions, but also helped him study creation. In fact, there are several instances in the Old Testament where wisdom is mentioned as a skill applied to shape creation into something useful and something beautiful. Exodus 35, 30 through 31. Moses then said to the Israelites, Look, the Lord has appointed by name Bezaliel, son of Uri, son of Ur, of the tribe of Judah. He has filled him with God's spirit, with wisdom, understanding, and ability in every kind of craft. Why? To design artistic works in gold, silver, and bronze that would be used in the construction of the tabernacle and the priesthood. You see, in Jeremiah 10, wisdom in goldsmiths, wisdom in sailors in Psalm 107. When we, as image bearers, join our Creator in creation and shaping creation to things that are useful and beautiful, we are demonstrating a kind of wisdom. You can take coffee beans and roast them and grind them and create a delicious cup of coffee that brings joy to other people, whether it's with cream or without. That is a type of wisdom. If you can take ingredients and chop and cut and dice and saute 
and slow roast and cook or put meat on the grill and with the Creator as an act of worship, take creation and create something beautiful and useful, that is a kind of wisdom. If you can take a guitar or piano and sit down and write music, set it to, to words that have a rhythm to it, that is a kind of wisdom. If you can use your voice to sing, if you can use your hands to sculpt, if you can use your body to achieve athletic feats, these are all types of wisdom. But you also see wisdom defined and displayed in what we would more typically consider as wisdom in verses 1 through 6 of Proverbs, chapter 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for learning wisdom and discipline, for understanding insightful sayings, for receiving prudent instruction in righteousness, justice, and integrity, for teaching shrewdness to the inexperienced, knowledge and discretion to the young man. Let a wise person listen and increase learning, and let a discerning person obtain guidance. For understanding a proverb or a parable, the words of the wise and their riddles. These proverbs have been given, he says, so we may learn and grow in wisdom, discipline, understanding to receive instruction. In things like verse uh, 3, righteousness, justice, and integrity. And so we see that we don't begin with all the wisdom that we need. It's not an app that we're born with and information downloaded into our minds, but it's something that we learn and grow in. This is clear in verse 4. The inexperienced and young need to learn shrewdness, knowledge, and discretion. There's a distinction between, in, in the Proverbs between the young and the old, the foolish, the immature, and the wise. Part, part of youth is not knowing and then learning and growing older and wiser as you learn. But notice in verse 5, just because you're old doesn't mean you're automatically wise. The wise person listens and increases learning and obtains guidance. Some older people are foolish because they quit learning and obtaining guidance. So it's not age automatically that gives us wisdom. Generally, that's true. As Proverbs does its thing, generally those things are true. But it's not always true. Because if you ever get to a point where you're not teachable any longer, you're not going to grow in wisdom, but will grow in foolishness. The wise, whether young or old, is the one who's humble and teachable to this instruction, who receives it because they've begun with an open hand and open mind, and they know they need it. I don't know. I need to know. And they never stop hungering for it, but they want to keep growing in it. So they more and more display and experience righteousness, justice, and integrity, understanding, knowledge, and discretion shrewdness and prudence, not only how to do the right thing, but how to do it the right way with the right timing so that doing what is right isn't only right, but beautiful and beneficial to others. This is wisdom. And so if we could define wisdom, it would be defined as knowing how life really works as God's designed it and how to make choices that achieve success and beautiful results in accordance with God's design. It's working in cooperation with our designer, our creator, to achieve what he sees as best and beneficial and beautiful in every area of life. This is wisdom. It's not just making right choices. It is that. But it's more than that. It's creating beautiful culture that displays our relationship with our creator God as his image bearers. It's taking everything we know about life in the created world and applying that knowledge to life situations so the result is God's best for you and others. 
And the book of Proverbs is filled with hundreds of short one and two sentence say, sayings that reveal what this wisdom looks like in everyday life. Songs, some of these written by Solomon, some written by others, uh, probably compiled or organized by Solomon, all intended to give instruction for the life of wisdom. Now, what's interesting, because wisdom goes back to creation, this kind of wisdom is actually found in all cultures. In fact, the civilizations that developed uh, earlier and faster than the Jewish civilization have wisdom literature that predates the book of Proverbs and the wisdom of Solomon. And because we're all human on the same ball of dirt trying to scratch out of life, all this wisdom sounds very similar. It sounds very helpful, no matter what culture you get it from. It's part of God's common grace to all the creation. And in some ways, it may seem like there's not much distinction between the wisdom of other cultures and the wisdom of God's people. So I'm going to read some sayings, and you don't, don't have to answer out loud, but in your mind, ask yourself, is this, is this from Proverbs, or is this from something else? Give beer to one who is dying, and wine to one whose life is bitter. Proverbs 31.6. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Proverb, just kidding. <laughs> what you leave behind is not what is engraved in stone monuments, but what is woven into the lives of others. That's the Greek philosopher Pericles. If one blesses his neighbor with a loud voice early in the morning, it will be counted as a curse to him. My teenage daughter. Just kidding. That's Proverbs 27, 14. Better to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all. I don't know where that came from. Somebody. Not Proverbs. One of the most beautiful qualities of true friendship is to understand and be understood. And that's the Greek philosopher Seneca. You miss 100% of the shots that you never take. Michael Scott. <laughs> or Wayne Gretzky. But if every culture has their own wisdom literature, and if every culture values wisdom, why aren't more people wise and living in wisdom and experiencing God's best? Like, isn't that strange? For something that's so universally valued and cherished like wisdom to not be experienced by more people? I mean, if you were to walk around to a, a group of random people and say, is wisdom a good thing? Do you value wisdom? Do you wish that you were a wise person? Like, who would say, nah, that's stupid? Everybody would say, yes. And most people would say, I have some wisdom. I'm wise in certain ways. But yet, when we look at how people are living life, how many people would you say are experiencing God's best life? Because it's a life flowing from God's wisdom in their life. So why don't more people have it? Well, we see the distinction in how we get wisdom. Because you, look at, you read the Proverbs and you think, this is just common sense. Like, we could create a society of people just following these rules and it would be a pretty good society. The problem is, we can't follow these. We fail. And the problem is, sometimes we desire some but not others and we pick and choose what we really like. We don't appropriate this into our life. We don't get wisdom. Because the way to get wisdom requires things that we don't want to give. And we see this in verse 7. How do we get wisdom? Verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. This verse is a summary of the theme of Proverbs and really all wisdom literature. 
The path for us to get wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Now notice a few things. First, we have to see that wisdom begins with God. He is the source of wisdom. This really makes sense if you think about it. Like if you wanted to uh, come up with the best way to live, the best life possible, and you were to poll all of humanity, how many different answers would you get from all the different cultures? And how many of those answers would actually contradict so that this group says I have to do this and this group says I have to do this and I can't do both? I can only do one or the other. So if I wanted to draw this wisdom for my best life from all of humanity, there's no way I could create a consensus. There's no way I would get a consensus from humanity. Everyone would disagree. No one would have the same path. So how do you decide who's right? Which way is best? The one who has more power and wealth? Well, they, they've got more power and wealth. Maybe their path is the best. The one who, has, uh, the one who shouts the loudest? The one who seems most intelligent? The one who appears more, more beautiful and kind? Is that how you decide whose path is best? It seems like an exercise in futility if looking at humanity as the source to find the best way to life, a life of wisdom, uh, because we can't all agree. It seems like if it were possible to go outside of ourselves to someone beyond ourselves, that this entity, this person, would have a bigger, higher, wider perspective and would know better. And we have that ability in God. Creator, not creation, who knows us inside and out, who's designed us best to function within certain parameters, and who's lovingly made these parameters known to us through His revealed Word. He knows what we don't know. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are beyond our thoughts. And I'm going to tell you how to do it. But isn't the Bible just a book written by men and interpreted by men and just another human opinion? Common objection. We dealt with that in a sermon back in February. You can go back and listen to that. But the ultimate answer for that is... Uh, for what makes us sure and confident is Christ. What we celebrated last Sunday, the resurrected Savior. He is the hinge on which our entire faith falls or rises. And the Word reveals to us Christ, the living, dying, resurrecting Savior. And the best explanation for what happened in the first century is that Jesus really was who He said He was and really did what He said He did. And our whole faith and confidence in anything in this book being true is that Jesus really rose from the dead. Because if he didn't, we can't believe any of this. It's just another book written by men. But if it is true, it changes everything. And we see that the wisdom we need to live our lives, our best life, can't just be human-oriented, but has to come from outside of ourselves, from one greater than ourselves, from God, and what is revealed about himself through his word and his instruction. And so our best life, the wise life, has to be built on the foundation of Scripture, what God has revealed. And the reason so many miss out on this is because their life isn't built on the foundation of what God's revealed as the ultimate and final authority but is built on themselves as the final and ultimate authority. Just like our parents in the garden who were deceived by the serpent to not trust God, took matters into their own hands, decided that what they understood was more authoritative than God, so we can all do the same and do do all the same. Either we do it all the time because we have zero desire to build our lives on God's wisdom and revelation, or we do it sometimes when we choose to sin. All sin is rooted in, I know better. I know better than you, God. 
and this desire or this hurt that I'm trying to meet or fix, I can meet it the way you've created me to meet it and it not be sin, or I can meet it my way and it be sin. Desires for relationship. Let me just surround myself with people who will serve me and make me happy. That's what I want. It's the ultimate. So I arrange my life as my little kingdom and I'm only really in relationship with people who will serve me and give me what I want and make me happy. Desire for sex. God's given us a path for this in marriage as we'll see in the Song of Solomon. It's an amazing experience within the parameters of the marriage bed. But so many people seek to fulfill this with whoever, whenever, and however. Desire for acceptance. We become people pleasers, so people will applaud us and make us feel accepted and valued. So we jump through all kinds of hoops so that people will be impressed with us and happy with us. Desire for work becomes either a job we have to endure to make money to do what I really want to do with my free time, or my job becomes the place where I gain my identity and value and worth by my achievement and success. Instead of work being a place where God can use us to create vibrant life-giving culture as His image bearer. We can go through every single area of life, and Proverbs does this, looking at how we demand our way is better than God's way, and we constantly give into this, and the end result is we don't live in wisdom from God. We settle for man's wisdom. And while we may experience life, we don't experience God's best. God is He's designed us to live. The best life, the wise life, sees all of this flowing from God to us, and He is the ultimate authority. And what He says is most important. And we, and to get wisdom, we have to start there. We have to start with God. He is the source. Secondly, we see wisdom flowing from a relationship with God or knowing God. Verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge in the wise life. And that sounds strange. I have to be scared of God? What are you talking about? What does that have to do with the wise life? Well, you probably know that fear in the Bible doesn't always mean phobia, being scared. You see it in a passage like Deuteronomy 10, 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you except to fear the Lord your God by walking in all of His ways, to love Him and to worship the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul? Fear the Lord by Running away from him afraid? No. Walking in his ways, loving him, worshiping him with all that you are. That doesn't sound like being scared. If fear and love and worship go hand in hand, this speaks of a relationship with God. So what does it mean to fear the Lord? Tim Keller defines it like this. Fear the Lord is life rearranging, joyful awe and wonder before the greatness of who God is and what he has done. Life rearranging joyful awe and wonder before the greatness of who God is and what He has done. He says fear is a good word to use because it keeps us humble. Like we all experience a joy in life when we are successful and we've done well, and we can look down on other people who aren't as successful and haven't done as well. We all can experience that kind of joy. But God calls us to a fear of the Lord that is a humble joy because it causes us to look up at His greatness and not have others looking at our greatness. How is that possible? Because by His grace we see who He is and what He has done and we are humbled. So we, don't, we can't look down on other people 
because we're looking up at him and his greatness. And this kind of fear is a humble, joyful fear. Kelly goes on to say, fear is also a good word because of what we know about how God's wired us and created us. You know what you ultimately, ultimately love by what you fear. If you fear rejection, it's because you love most the approval of people. If you fear being humiliated, it's because you love most power and control over people. If you fear losing your wealth, losing your resources, losing your children, losing your spouse, it's because you love that stuff or that person the most. And so a fear of the Lord that rearranges your life and brings joy flows from a heart that loves God most of all. You can have an intellectual knowledge of God that is not a love and fear of God just because you know the facts about God. That's the danger we all run into every time we gather in a place like this. I'm hearing facts. I'm checking all the intellectual boxes, but I don't know God because I only know about God. We do have to have knowledge. God's revealed knowledge and facts and realities about who He is, but it has to lead to a knowing Him and a relationship with Him. To live a life of God's wisdom, you have to not just know the facts about God, but you have to know Him. For example, would anyone be, have a picture on the slide, satisfied with that, just knowing that? Knowing those molecular structures and what is the relationship between those different molecules and different elements? Like, are you satisfied just knowing that about coffee and chocolate? Would you be happy the rest of your life if all you knew about coffee and chocolate was this molecular formula? Or do you have to experience and taste and smell and savor coffee and chocolate to really know it, to enjoy it? It's the same thing with God in a much greater way. Are you satisfied with just knowing facts about God? Being able to check intellectual boxes? Or is He your friend who sticks closer than a brother? Is He your shepherd who guides your soul through the worst things that life brings and through the greatest joys that life brings? Is He your king before whom you willingly and lovingly bow and say, you're the boss, whatever you want, send me out. Is he your everything? And you know him in a deep and intimate way. This is the fear of the Lord, and the only way we can experience God's wisdom and experience God's best in all of life. So to get wisdom, we have to get God. Not just facts about him, but him, where he becomes our greatest desire and pursuit And when we have him, we have his wisdom. How do we get him? Hold on to that question. Thirdly, we have to begin with God to get wisdom. We have to know God in a relationship. And thirdly, we have to trust him, which means we follow him, which means we believe his path is right and best no matter what. So knowing God in relationship that actually shows up in how you live life so that God says, you're in a relationship with me. Now here's my plan. Do you trust me enough to walk it out? You just affirm all these great truths in the book of Proverbs? Are you willing to lay them down as the, the foundation and the portal through which you will live life? This is the fear of the Lord is the beginning. 
Beginning is the door through which you, you walk through. It's the foundation on which you walk to experience knowledge and wisdom of God, to experience His best. And so to do that, you have to trust Him. You have to know Him in a relationship and actually live this out and trust Him. And to really know God in a real relationship means we have unconditional trust. So many of us began the Christian life and struggle in the Christian life with a conditional trust of God. I'll trust you, God, as long as I think your path is best. I'll trust you as long as I'm enjoying the ride. I'll trust you as long as I get what I want. It's all conditional. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 calls us to unconditional trust. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, know Him, and He will make your path straight. If the God of the Bible is actually who God is, if God is the one who called everything into existence from nothing, and the entire universe is being upheld by the word of His power, and He is all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent, sovereign over everything, do you think this God is making Himself available to you as an optional add-on? Do you think He's sending you an application for a part-time job as your administrative assistant? Do you think this God is sitting in the corner saying, hey, I'm here if you need me, otherwise, go do what you want? No. He, because of who he is and what he has done, is worthy of our unconditional trust or nothing at all. Or nothing at all. And so not only do you know him in a real relationship, but are you trusting him with all of your life? No matter what. At, in every, think about every single area of your life. Just in your mind. Every responsibility that you have, everything that you own, every relationship that you have, every hope, every dream, every fear. Think about every single area of your life and ask yourself these two questions. Are you willing to do whatever God says even if you don't agree with Him? Is there any area of your life where you'd be like, uh, I don't think so? Are you willing to do whatever God says even if you don't agree with Him? Are you willing to accept anything God sends or anything that happens in that area of your life even if you don't understand? Are you willing to accept anything God sends or anything that happens in that area of your life even if you don't understand it? Your answers to those questions will determine how much you are trusting God unconditionally. Does He really have every single area of your life. As I heard someone say recently, the entire Bible can be summed up with the words, trust me. Our parents in the garden did not. And the great struggle of our life is to trust him unconditionally. This was the test of Job. Will he trust God if all he has is God? And God is continually working in our life to help us find out if that is our heart and to get us to the place where it is our heart. Trust Him with everything. All I truly need is Him. And whatever else He has for me, I trust Him, no matter what. To get to the life of wisdom, God's best life requires we start with God, we know God in a genuine relationship, and we trust 
him unconditionally. So how is all that possible? Because there was one who came, who is described in Isaiah 11, verse 2 through 3, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord who according to 1 Corinthians 1.30 was the wisdom of God for us, who according to Matthew 12 was greater than Solomon. Solomon was the wisest before and after until this one who came along was wiser still. The one who said at the end of his longest ser- sermon, therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it did not collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rains fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. And it collapsed with a great crash. In Jesus, the God-man, the only one to rise from the dead, never to die again, the one great mediator between God and man, we have what makes Christianity and the gospel unique from every other form of wisdom in the world and from every other source of wisdom in the world. It's what we celebrated last Sunday, Easter, his resurrection, which we actually celebrate every Sunday, which we actually celebrate every day because he's alive continually and forever. The resurrection was God's stamp of verification and approval on everything. And if all of this is true about Jesus, then everything in our life has to flow from God, through God, in order for us to experience life at its best. The life of wisdom, the life God has designed us to live. Is that where you are this morning? Does he really have all of you? Is there any area of your life that he doesn't have? because you're not trusting him unconditionally. As the band, worship team comes back up to lead us, I just want to invite you to spend a few moments asking the Spirit of God to make known whatever you, he needs to make known in your life for you to walk in the the wise life, the best life that God has for you. For the Holy Spirit to come right now, just in a few moments of silence after the worship team walks up, a few moments of silence to, to reflect and hear the Spirit of God speaking to your life. Where is He bringing conviction? Where is He bringing encouragement? Where is He bringing hope? Where is He bringing comfort? And then to, to, to respond like the wise man, Jesus said, to hear these words of mine and do them and build your house on the rock that is Christ. So just for a few seconds, listen to the Spirit of God speaking to you. Spirit, I pray that however you have spoken your grace and truth to hearts that are here, you would empower 
repentance, faith, and obedience. Not just now, but when we leave and we're sent back into our everyday life. Spirit, I pray that you would empower worship. That as we partake in singing and prayers and scripture and in this meal in a few moments, that we could joyfully celebrate the life, death, and resurrection of our Savior and our King. We won't walk in shame, but we'd walk in acceptance. Because of Jesus, we belong. Because of Jesus, we have hope and life and forgiveness. So I pray that you would bring the gospel to bear in every heart and life in this room. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.